If there's one thing that my grandma always told me, one bad sausage spoils the bunch. I think your grandma grew sausages in bunches. She had a sausage tree. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, we find out how to help veterans succeed in science and why it's so important to all of us. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is Hello PhD, episode 12. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we will discuss the human side of research and life in the lab. Good day, Daniel. Yo, Josh. What are we drinking today? Dan, I am really excited about this beer today. I know you are. I mean, I'm always excited, but I am legitimately excited. It's got a bird on it. This must be a hipster beer. (laughs) Put a bird on it. Uh, This is the Vienna Lager. From Devil's Backbone Brewing Company out of Lexington, Virginia. Oh, that's uh, around your home, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm a Virginia native, and you know Virginia hasn't always been known for its craft breweries, but it's been an up-and-coming industry in Virginia. And I would always drink the, uh, the Devil's Backbone, the Vienna Lager, when I would go see my family in Virginia. And a couple weeks ago, Devil's Backbone began distributing here in North Carolina. So I can now drive right down the street, and pick up a six-pack of Vienna Lager. Um, did you know that one of our mutual friends pronounced that word Vienna? No. Not Vienna. Yeah, well, but but in reference to the sausages, particularly, <laughs> instead of Vienna sausages, she called them Vienna sausages. Oh, that's how you pronounce the sausages. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, the beer's good. I like it. This is a good beer. This is a, a quality beer. I highly recommend, if you guys are out there, if you're in Virginia and you're not drinking this beer... You got to go out and get some Devil's Backbone Vienna Lager. You like this better than the last Virginia beer you brought in? This, uh, <laughs> if you were in Colonial Williamsburg, <laughs> skip over Aleworks Brewing Company no, come and on. go straight to the uh, Devil's Backbone. I'm telling you, that's the best tip you'll ever get on this show. So, Dan, uh, what are we talking about today? Well, this is the follow up to our episode 10 where we talked about uh, Am I Too Old for This? What we wanted to do is get into the second half of Jake's question. Now, I don't know if you remember that one. Yeah, so as a recap, um, Jake was a, a veteran who was interested in going back to school um, and finishing his undergrad and his PhD. And so part one of the question was, at 27 years old, is he too old to go back to school? Spoiler alert. Nope. No, he, we determined he wasn't. We had a great conversation with Robin Chamberlain, who um, also went back to school um, at a later age. And so I think we determined pretty much um, unanimously that certainly he's not too old to go back to school, Dan, but he had he had a lot of other things to say, a lot of other concerns too. Yeah, we broke this question into two parts because um, they, were, they were related, but they were really pretty different. And we wanted to be able to spend the time to actually answer his question. So let me get back into the question. He, he describes himself as a disabled military vet who was going to school under the GI Bill and, and he says that over the course of his time in college, he suffered a mental breakdown. And that led to his GPA dropping, and he had to leave the program. Um, but, but he was sure he wanted to go back. He wanted to go back and get his PhD, but he was concerned about his age. And, and the two parts of the question we didn't read last week was, um, he was concerned that he may have burned some bridges having dropped out. So he was really questioning, will he get a second chance going back to school? Mm-hmm. Uh, he asked a third question, which is, uh, about he received help for his mental health issues from the VA, 
that he was dealing with, but he was concerned that he would have a recurrence in grad school. And, and Josh, as you and I know, graduate school is emotionally as challenging as it is academically and mentally. So um, you know, these were these really stood out to me as uh, issues that, that could be factors, and we wanted to get some expert advice. Absolutely. Graduate school is stressful enough, even if you're not dealing with some of the other challenges that, that Jake mentioned. Dan, you actually reached out to somebody who really was a, is an expert or has a lot of experience working with veterans who go back to school? That's right, I did. I got to talk to John Shoup uh, at Tiffin University, and he's actually designed some programs to help veterans succeed in undergraduate uh, careers. That is really cool. I'm excited to hear it. So let's go ahead and take a listen. John Shoup, professor of chemistry, Tiffin University. Very good. Know that you got the chance to read the question I sent over from Jake. And I did. I, I'm guessing this is not the first time you've come across a student in his situation. So can you talk a little bit about what you observed when, when you were working with veterans that returned from the service and enrolled in college? Well, here's what, let me just first of all tell you the, the, the birth of the program and how I came about it. It's important for vets to know why I did this. And because it's, you know, they, it's all about trust with a veteran. And you have, they have to know what's the motivation behind a person doing something. So it all started in the fall of 06 when I had a student call me up with a chemistry question because I always give out my number to my students. I say, you can call me till 1 a.m. with a chemistry question. I won't give them bail money, but I'll answer their chemistry question. You know, she went into that. And then she went into how she's going to make it for the first time in 10 years and she's not going to fail or drop. And I said, that's great. I'm excited for you. What happened before? And when she said, like, when I came back from Kosovo, I just couldn't fit in and I couldn't adjust and I kept failing and dropping. I said to myself, well, is this normal or is she an anomaly? Because I don't know anything about it at this point. I don't know anything about anything when it comes to vets and education at this point. So I did some research on it, and I realized, and, and by the time fall of 08 was around, that veterans don't succeed on campus. And I thought, well, why is that? Because, you know, they've got the money for it, and the biggest anxiety for most civilians is the money. So I said, well, i got to find out why. And I, I didn't want to ask the present generation of vets because they weren't really back yet. And so I said, well, let me ask the Vietnam vets. They've been through it enough to know what it took and what their challenges were and so on. So, you know, as a layperson, I mean, where do you find vets? Go to the VA. Okay. So I go to the VA in Cleveland. And I showed up and I said, I want to talk to some vets about, you know, some Vietnam vets about education and so on. And they're like, okay, sure, I have a seat. So I had a seat. You know, people walk by, you know, two or three hours goes by. They close at five. Okay, you got to go. So I said, all right, fine. So I go, I want to come back next week, Tuesday, with donuts. <laughs> Sat there from two to five, they ate the donuts, and then that was it, and I had nothing. So I just went on for about three or four weeks, and finally, after the fourth week, they finally said, what the heck do you want? And I said, all I want to do is talk to some Vietnam vets about their challenges. Now, what I didn't know at the time was, you just can't show up as a civilian, because they had, you, you gotta develop trust, you gotta work your way into it. And part of that was me coming up every week, you know, and then and, and waiting. So finally they said, okay, let's go. So I went into, a, I had a conference room set up with about 15 vets in a big square table. And Richard, when I asked the question about what were the challenges when they came back, Richard in the corner said, John, we weren't stupid. We just couldn't concentrate. And if you can't concentrate, you don't pass the exams, you fail, you drop out, you get so mad, you quit. So I said, okay, in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, there's two reasons for that. One is, is based upon the person themselves, which I can't change because I'm not a psychologist. And the other one is the environment, which I can't. So I said, let me change the environment. I want to pause right here, Josh, because I think um, he's he's making some interesting points that I we can really broaden to um, 
give some good advice to other people in the science community. Yeah, this really jumped out at me. So as you know, Daniel, um, I do a lot of work, um, and a passion of mine is increasing the inclusivity of the science culture for groups that are traditionally underrepresented in science. And sounds a lot like veterans in science. Absolutely, I think veterans with, would with totally fit into that group. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the big mind shifts that's taken place in sort of the idea of diversifying science is, you know, there was a time where, you know, I think researchers, these are usually scientists who are thinking about these issues, said, okay, there's a problem. There's certain groups that if you look at their percentage in the population as a whole, it's a certain percent. Then if you look at their percentage in the science community, it's much less. Yeah, there's a mismatch here. Absolutely. So we call that an underrepresented group, right? Okay. These tend to be um, cer- certain groups, um, underrepresented minorities, um, individuals with disabilities from lower socioeconomic groups. And I think initially, sort of the mindset I think people had within the science community was, okay, what is it that's wrong with people in these groups that we can fix yeah. so that they can succeed in science or yeah, at the we university. we did a Head Start program or we did something to kind of change them so that they were more like us. That way they'd fit in better. Exactly. Almost almost like a, a deficiency model, right? But but now, you know, we've realized that that way of thinking was completely off base and completely wrong. The real question we should be asking, which as scientists, that's really the key point is asking the right question, is not what's wrong with certain groups of people that's keeping them Uh, from succeeding, but what is it that's wrong with the environment? What is it that's wrong with the scientific environment, the university environment, the institutional structures that are preventing people from certain groups from succeeding? Yeah, and I I just love what he said. He said, you know, I I could, it could be a problem with the person and that I can't change because I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, or it could be a problem with the classroom, which I can change. And that's what he focused on. I loved it. I love that. You know, there's something that I heard, um, an anecdote that I heard that I thought was really cool. And that is, if you had a pond and one fish died in your pond, it might make sense to say, I want to examine this fish and find out what was wrong with the fish. Yeah, autopsy. Exactly. But if you had a pond and all the fish died, you wouldn't say, what's wrong with the fish? You would say what? What's wrong with the pond? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So so instead of assigning blame on that on the group of fish, you'd say... What is preventing them from thriving in this environment? Exactly. There's something about this environment that's preventing success. Awesome. Let's jump back into it. So what I did was I took all civilians out of the classroom as as an experiment and put all vets in, English 101, Math 101, and so on. So that was my experiment. Now, I had to convince the university to do this because, you know, they didn't feel like doing it. So I had to show them how much money could be made if we do this. So it took me all of the last half of 06 and early 07 to convince the university to do it. And then by my July of 07, I started recruiting. That was a disaster in the beginning on how to recruit. Oh, my God, it was terrible. So I learned the mistakes of how to recruit veterans. And it's all about one-on-one. It's not about big group meetings. It's not about a big job fair. It's none of that kind of stuff. It's all one-on-one because when they enrolled or enlisted in the military, it was one-on-one. They had a recruiter with them the whole way, developing a trust with them, and then they committed themselves for four years based upon that trust. And that so you're, able to, you're basically able so to I'm, model that in the, in the college recruiting Exactly. Sector. Makes sense. Exactly. Which they don't do in colleges. They just figure, let's do a blanket fair and hope we get 5%. And that's how they, that's how they are when they're in. 
but they're in with a group of people who develop trust with them. You know, before they commit themselves, they had it had to be one on one. It had to be a relationship established between the recruiter and that branch of service and that potential, uh, you know, military person. So, you, I didn't. You don't see all that. All you see is them in groups. They're in. They're in companies. They're on patrols. They're you know. So you see. Well, they're used to being in large groups, but you don't see how they got to that point. Right. And that's what I had to learn. That was my all the failures that I had. So finally, you know, I got my team students for fall of away. And I had to learn how the whole campus worked from, you know, I was just a little part-time teacher. So I had to learn how the treasury department worked, registrars, the classes, how to create the classrooms themselves, where to put them, who's going to teach, you know, the tuition, all this kind of stuff. So I learned everything about the, the, the campus individually. And I, you know, I didn't have committees. I didn't have meetings. I just went to people individually with donuts and, you know, and said, here's what I got to do. And when you do that and people realize you're doing it, then they, they, they go out of their way to help. Mm-hmm. So Cleveland State was great with that in the beginning. So then I had my first class, and we had um, English, math, I taught chemistry, and biology. And the challenge was trying to get teachers to teach it because they're all scared. You know, oh, my God, vets in a classroom all together, just vets. You know, like, no worry about it. You're not going to teach this. I'm fine. Somebody else. So I finally got my four teachers, and I gave out the first exam because I wanted to see how, what would happen. So I had my, you know, I had chemistry. So I handed my first exam out, and... I was waiting, and they took it, and they handed it in, and there was no problems. No one tore it up. No one yelled and screamed. No one ran out. No nothing. So I'm like, okay. So then I graded it, and I had a higher average than my siblings. And is I that said, right? okay, why is that? So I went back to Richard at the VA, and I said, could the problem have been that your ability to not concentrate was that when you're stuck in a room full of civilians, you have been trained to evaluate the environment. The environment can kill you. The environment can cause harm. You have to protect the environment. This assignment can't do anything to me. So my focus is all around me and not on what's in front of me. Now, when you take away that, that pressure and take away that, the, the distractions from the civilians and put all vets in the classroom, now you, have, you don't have to worry about them because they're all on your side. They can protect themselves. You're not know, protecting them. Now the assignment becomes more important. He said that's exactly what it was. They didn't know. So now I said, okay, fine. Now that I found the reason for this, if we have a first a whole semester, first semester of vets-only classes, and then the second semester, and these are all volunteer, they don't have to take all, all vet classes they want to. Then the second semester, then I have nine credit hours in veteran classes and three in civilian classes. This way they have a slower transition into the civilian world. And so I've got you know, full-time benefits is 12 credit hours. So then that will be a slower assimilation into the civilian world rather than just the first day you're on campus. Once you put the so then my GPAs went to the roof. I mean, they were a whole letter grade ahead of um, their, the civilian counterparts. And when I compared vets-only classes GPA to those vets who did not have the vet-only class GPA in the second semester in, in civilian classes, they were a half letter grade higher those vets who had vet-only classes to begin with. And then I began to explore which classes they should take. Because there's certain classes, I mean, when you go to an advisor, the advisor says, oh, you got to take math and English right away. Get them out of the way. Just get them out of the way, blah, 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 blah. That's the worst classes to have for vets. I knew, I learned that after the first semester. So what I found worked, classes-wise, was you give them, and I tell this to advisors all across the country, offer them psychology, sociology, and communications. That's what they're good at. They're good at communications. They know the psychology of the, of the, of the enemy. And so they're all about working in groups. Give them those classes the first semester. 
they ace those. Then you give them math and English the second semester. So if they fail a math and English class, they won't go on probation right away. So just push it off one semester. That's what's working now. So now when advisors know this, then they suggest it to them, and then the veterans take hold of it, and they run with it. Now, if I say if you, have a, if you need a foreign language requirement, then offer them sign language, because huh. that's what they do, and they that's ace tough. the sign language. So you set them up for an, an early win, and, and you, you get them in the right mental state. You put them around people that are supporting them, and they start with success rather than starting with failure. Exactly. And it's a, it's a, it's a 15-week transition versus a one-day transition. Okay, let's, let's pause here again. Um, you know, he talks about the making the environment more comfortable for veterans by putting them around people that are like them. And, and I think this makes a lot of sense. So if, if I came out of kind of a small liberal arts college, I might fall into a top-tier research university and really feel out of place. Um, and, and with the veterans, just magnified. I'm sure you have experiences just like this, Josh. Yeah, absolutely. One thing you, you actually see is um, transitioning into... Yeah, really, anytime you have a transition point, whether it's from into an undergraduate setting or especially into a graduate setting, um, you know, there's a certain level of adjustment that has to be made. So there's there's academic adjustment. Um, there's just adjustment to the rigor of the coursework, the research. But one thing you find is that, you know, certain groups, if you're in a marginalized group, um, you often have this additional layer of adjustment that you have to deal with, and that's sort of a cultural adjustment, right? And that actually can be very tiring. That can take a lot of mental effort is to just adjust from one environment that you're used to being in or certain types of people you're used to being around to being in an environment where you're around a totally different type of person. I think this is certainly true for um, certain uh, marginalized groups or underrepresented groups, um, but also I think um, in the um, example of veterans like we're talking about here, if you're used to being around all veterans, right, in that environment, it, I would imagine it would be very challenging. There would be this extra level level of cultural adjustment that you would have to do on top of just um, adjusting to the academic rigors. Yeah, and he and I, uh, Dr. Shoup and I, talked very specifically about what it's like for a disabled vet to be in these classrooms. So if you are, are especially physically disabled and you walk into a classroom of 18-year-olds, they look at you and they say things like, you know, why did you go enlist? Why did you serve overseas? Why do you have that scar? Why, why do you have this problem? And it is so alienating. And what he talked about is when you get into a room full of other veterans, even if they're not disabled, they knew that person who, who became disabled because they were saving their, their group or they were helping their platoon or they you know, took a bullet for somebody else. And so they are supporting that person rather than asking all of these tough questions and looking at them as if they're some kind of outsider. And he said, they make it their job to help that disabled vet succeed. And so being in that group is really what helps. Yeah, and I would have to think that, you know, college or grad school or whatever it is, is hard enough on its own to also have on top of that just this sort of feeling of, of not belonging or being different would just be an added challenge that that other traditional students don't have to deal with. Yeah, you've got to pretend to be somebody else in addition to, to tackling this academic stuff. And how cool would it be to have a group of 8 or 10 or 15 people around you that were making sure you were successful? Absolutely. I mean, that support network, I think, is key. Okay, let's get back to it. So yeah. that, that's how I started it. And, and, and when I would speak to different schools in, in, around the country or conferences, I was weird. I felt weird because, you know, when I hear somebody else talk about it, 
their what they would do and what their programs were, they always specified like we had one vet who did this and we had one vet who did that. And I'm like, well, what about the other ones? And then I realized because I felt out of place. I really did. I, I, my whole approach was different than most people speaking. So I'm thinking, well, why am I? Why is this so different? Why am I the one who's the oddball? And then I realized, Daniel, I was the only chemistry person in this world of education. Yep. Everyone else is a psychologist and sociologist. So they look at the softer part of things. They don't do the scientific method like I do. Yeah. I mean, my scientific method was, here's the, here's the objective, okay? I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to collect data, put forth some results, and have a conclusion. I mean, that's what's that's so what fun about hearing you describe it. You, you did experiments. You said our first experiment was take the civilians out of the classroom. You were you were taking the right. scientific approach to this, um, what would traditionally well, be a well, social science problem. Saying, yeah. well, what's wrong with these people? What's wrong with the vets? What's yeah. wrong? Why don't they fit in? No, no, no. Let's, that, you can do all that, but let me see if I can do this experiment and see what happens. Then I, I observed from that. And what I found was veterans are used to discipline, and they don't have discipline in the classroom. And the veterans are used to the person speaking as their superior, a full bird colonel, a general, whatever, laying out the groundwork for that mission. That's what they're used to. Now, if you have a person up there speaking and kids are wa- around you, Facebooking, texting, and everything else, then that veteran thinks he's not, what he's saying must not be important because they're not listening to him. So then the vet goes to the teacher and says, you know, what do I need to know what, what you spoke about today? Because he's trying to figure out what's important. And the teacher says, well, everything. And the vet's like, well, in his mind, it can't be everything because no one gave a crap. You know, he's used to being in a room where there's no talking, you're you're 100% attention because that person, that general, that colonel is laying out a battle plan. And if you don't adhere to it and listen to it, you may cost lives. I just love uh, that as a chemist, he approached this as a chemistry problem almost. He, He had some reagents and he mixed them together in different ways and he talks about look i failed i had this assumption i had this hypothesis and it didn't work out um but applying this to education applying this to sociology such a cool a cool way to use your science training yeah i mean i know dr shoop is is in the academic sector but you know i remember being at a conference a few years ago and the keynote speaker was was Bruce Alberts. Are you familiar with Bruce Alberts? Tell me more. So he um, was one of the, he's one of the main editors of Molecular Biology of the Cell, which is one of the big cell biology, well-known cell biology textbooks. Um, he's also, besides his science work, he's done some, some work politically, being a political advisor. And one of the things he talked about at this conference that really has stuck with me all these years is the importance of people with scientific training in other arenas that are not science and how it's so critical. And I think a lot of us, if we, you know, follow politics, especially, um, and, and other things as scientists, we get very frustrated when people sort of make decisions or these, uh, <laughs> make these statements that in no way are based on any, uh, not logic data, or data fact data or data. Not, right. Yeah. Right. And so, um, I think it is so important, um, really if we're going to solve problems, not just in science, but in lots of other, um, sectors as well to be able to take the scientific training that we have to identify the right questions and how to address them um, in lots of other areas besides the lab. Yeah, use use what you know, use that training you got, and apply it everywhere you can um, because I think it's it's such a underutilized resource and it's so needed in so many fields. So uh, use Dr. Shoup as your example. Yeah, and obviously he's having a lot of success by doing it that way. Yeah, doing great. Two kind of related questions. Why, 
why is the academic success of veterans so important to you and why should it be important to me and to other people at the university? Well, here's the thing. Once I did a, I did a study on the suicides and I, I began to look at the history of this country, I realized that every time we embrace an era of veterans, we grow as a country. And every time we don't embrace an era of veterans, we fail as a country or we flounder. Um, I'll, I'll cut in right here. You know, Dr. Shoup and I talked a long time about how veterans make the economy and they make society better. And and he was able to lay it out. He, he talked about um, how we embraced veterans after each of the major wars from the Civil War up to the present and how every time we got it right as a nation and we incorporated um, veterans and, and welcomed them back into our society, the economy got better. Um, society got better. And, and the reasons he cited were, you know, these are people that are accustomed to working for the, the good of the group and for the good of the team. Um, they're, they're very results oriented and they're going to execute on that. And, and what he said was when people do that, they're influencing the other people around them and they're making the right decisions. Yeah. And I totally agree with you, Daniel. And as I was hearing him talking about this, you know, I thought back on my own experiences. And I know during graduate school, I had some interaction with other students who were veterans. And, and even in my current role, um, certainly interacting professionally with veterans. And I think it's absolutely true. Um, you know, at least the, the veterans that I've interacted with, just naturally through their training, I guess, are team players and really, you know, really do build up all the people around them and have just been great assets to to our teams. I'm sure we could make a list of, of industries and events where um, people who are looking out for themselves only cause problems. I can think of a few financial catastrophes and disasters and, and various things. Um, wouldn't it be great if if we were really influenced by this type of thinking in, in our world? There's no I in team. Um, but there is a me? I don't know. <laughs> Touche, sir. Okay. Touche. Um, yeah, but, but I think, you know, this really is, it's an important issue to all of us. And I think it's incumbent on us as scientists and, and as people who, you know, want to make a difference in the world and who care about um, making things right for the people who went and served the country. Uh, this is important. Let's, let's work on this. So I made sure that we got Jake's specific questions answered. So let's listen to um, the, the direct responses that Dr. Shoup gave to questions two and three. You know, does Jake have a second chance? And, you know, what happens when he gets to graduate school? Is he going to be successful there? I mean, that's related to another question that I had, uh, you know, through Jake, which was, he said, I'm concerned I burned my bridges having dropped out. And, and is that true? Is there no second chance for no. the GI Bill? No. Mm -mm. All he has to show is that, listen, I went through this, and they, the VA knows this. The VA knows that the guys have struggled in the beginning, you know? Yeah. And the universities are all about second chances anyway. That's what universities are for, as I said. I mean, universities are used to having people who struggle and then come back and succeed. So... No, don't have but in the military he's thinking oh my god I'm out yeah. you know I've been put in the brig I'm done I ain't coming back that's not how the university is and I, and I have plenty of examples in my own classes I mean I had guys who took two weeks off you know because they were freaked out and I said that's why I created the program for you to come back and he did he came back graduated in, in, in three years and he's successful now um, the, the third question that, that Jake posed was the one that concerned me the most particularly related to doing a PhD and he talked about how he got help with some of his mental health issues from the VA, but he was concerned he'd have a mm -hmm. recurrence. And, and having been through a PhD program, to me, it is academically rigorous, fine, 
but emotionally it is very difficult. And and I had every advantage and a supportive network around me. Um, have you seen vets go through PhD programs and, and what works for that? I've had many vets get dissertations on what I just talked about. You know, the whole thing about education and everything else, they've done it on based on what I talked about, so yeah. But it's, it's challenging, but if they, if they have a good support network around them plus the professor, then they'll do it. And, and they do something they're passionate about. You know, if that mission fulfills what they want, like he was talking about, if he can, if he can have somebody who embraces that, then he'll be passionate about it and he'll get it done in no time. I mean, how to do, they know how to do schedules. They know how to do time management. They'll do it in no time. It's just a matter of just finding the right environment around you. That's all. We'll end the, uh, the interview there, but, but I talked to Dr. Shoup for quite a while. And if you are a vet or you have a particular interest in this topic, we'll make sure to post the full uh, interview online so you can get it. Just go to the show notes and, and please download that if you're interested. Yeah, a lot of great information there. Um, Daniel, thanks for reaching out to Dr. Shoup. I learned a lot. That was really cool. Yeah, it is cool. Um, if you have more to add to that conversation, if you are a veteran or you have uh, an interest in this field, please email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can find us on Twitter at hellophd. But at this moment, should we move on to the etymology puzzle? I'm always waiting expectantly on the etymology puzzle every week. I'm hoping you're going to get this one. It's been, I feel like I've been in a drought the last couple of weeks, so I am really hoping for this one. This one's on you. You ready? So the clue last week was eating a bad sausage contaminated with this poison might cause drooping eyelids, double vision, and difficulty breathing. Any guesses? Bad sausage. What does bad sausage have to do with anything? Bad sausage. That seems like it could be the clue. <laughs> That's how the sausage gets made. Why would I put that in there? Why would I talk about a bad sausage? I'll let you have the one, hook, sir. You know, if there's one thing that my grandma always told me, one bad sausage spoils the bunch. I think your, your grandma grew sausages in bunches. <laughs> she had a sausage tree. Um, no, so I'll let you have the hook. The, the answer was botulinum toxin from your favorite microbe, how did I not get this one? Uh, because you don't know your Latin. We're, we're working on it. Clostridium. Clostridium botulinum. Um, but the, the Latin botulus means sausage. It also means bowel. So you're learning where sausages come from. Um, but it's called botulinum because uh, it was traced, this poisoning was traced to a sickness called sausage poisoning in German. And so people were eating this tainted sausage that contained botulism and you know, got sick. So now botulism is a multi-billion dollar industry where you can get it injected into your face and you can cause paralysis on purpose. But at the time, bad deal. So I guess I don't want to know how the sausage was made. No, you definitely do not. Do you, do you know anybody that's done the Botox thing? I don't think I do, but I would love to find out. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Do you know somebody? Uh, I don't. I don't. If you've gotten Botox... The we word would like contains to- toxin. <laughs> just doesn't sound like a good idea. It's so crazy. What will they think of next? I think I saw it on a Penn & Teller episode, and they, they did the injections. I can't watch that. Yeah, yeah. Not not for me. Dan, uh, what, do you, what do you have for this week? Okay, so it's a real short clue this week. This wrist bone is hard-headed. Uh, I'll read it again. This wrist bone is hard-headed. So you should have some pretty good odds coming up with this one. I think there are only eight bones in the wrist. I know. My brain is working. Keep working on it. If you think you know the answer... Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. 
you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com and I will randomly select the winner from the correct answers. That, man, this was a great this was a great show. Um, I really, really enjoyed um, hearing the answers to Jake's question, which reminds me, we would we really want to hear your questions. So if you've got something that you're dealing with in the lab on a day-to-day basis, we would love to hear about it, big or small. Chances are somebody else is going through it too. So you can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, or you can tweet at us at hellophd, and we would love to answer your question here on the show. Josh, did you finish your Vienna lager? I am at the last drink. Vienna. I love this beer. Yeah, if you're from the South, you can call uh, Vienna sausages Vienna sausages. So I'll just let you know in case you didn't. Go to your local beer store and ask for the Vienna lager. They will throw you out of that store. Dan, we will see you next week. See you next week, Josh.